Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host. And today you are listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising healthy, happy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information, tools, and strategies. So let's fill that well. Today's well source is Dr. Rob Valick, who is going to share a little bit about the state of opioids and prescription drugs in Colorado, as well as what parents need to know about misuse and abuse. Rob Valick is a professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy, Epidemiology, and Family Medicine at the University of Colorado School of Pharmacy, Public Health, and Medicine. Dr. Valick received his BS in Pharmacy from the University of Colorado and his master's and PhD degrees in pharmacy from the University of Illinois at Chicago. He is licensed to practice pharmacy in Colorado and Illinois. Dr. Valick is the director for the Center for Pharmaceutical Outcome Research at the School of Pharmacy. His major areas of research include post-marketing studies of the beneficial and adverse effects of pharmaceuticals, with a primary emphasis on rare, serious, adverse effects of psychotropic drugs. Dr. Valick is also coordinating center director of the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention, created by Governor Hickenlooper in 2013 to address the prescription drug abuse problem with a collaborative statewide interagency approach. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Sure, good morning. So. Um, you're really passionate about making a difference in reducing the misuse and abuse of opioids and other prescription drugs. Can you share a little bit about how you got into this work? Sure. Uh, basically, uh, I come from a medical family. My dad was a physician. My brother is a dentist. Uh, a lot of members of my family and extended family are in the medical field. So I saw a lot of you know healthcare-related stuff from a very young age. Uh, and basically, you know, saw where things were really, you know, wonderful and all the kind of advances that were happening in medicine and all kinds of good things that, that the, the profession and the field can do, but also saw stuff that was, you know, discouraging and was, was kind of challenging. Uh, you know, people still not you know, getting enough cures for, for cancer, for other diseases, people suffering with things that, that could be helped through whether it's, you know, surgical intervention or pharmacology or therapy or better wellness and prevention or different strategies, but how to try to improve human health. And I, I got into that and was planning to go to med school. Like, you know, many kids grow up, you, you idolize your dad or other people. And I said, I'm going yeah, to be a doctor like dad was. And for a long time, thought that's what I would do. And uh, yeah, I went to pharmacy school uh, to prepare for being a good doctor. I thought this would be better than having a um, any other prep degree, if I knew all the medications better, um, I would be a better doctor. And CU had a pharmacy school, so this is great. So I uh, did that. It was back, it was on the Boulder campus right here where we're sitting now. Uh, so I went to a pharmacy school, and during my time in pharmacy school, learned about, you know, sort of the concept of that medications are wonderful, uh, but they also have side effects. And so it's always this kind of a notion of no free lunch. With, with medications, that they have lots of good uses, but they also have problems, and that's true for a lot of things, and really all of them. Uh, and even then, in the mid-80s, uh, we were starting to see things happening with people becoming addicted to opioids. 
and this is way back when Percocet was new and Vicodin was new and these were brand new drugs and we were talking a lot about pain being undertreated and how we needed to use these drugs more um, because people were suffering and I really, I, I totally understood that and was kind of part of that understanding. Uh, but then we started to see things even 30 years ago that people were uh, having problems with them and we wanted to try to start addressing it. So I joined when I was in pharmacy school in 1986, joined a task force that was already formed uh, to try to educate doctors and patients about potential problems with opioids. Um, and, but it was just very small. The, the consequences weren't as bad as they, as they ultimately became after 20, 25 years of growth. Mm -hmm. um, and people thought at the time we were kind of crazy, like talking about, what are, you, what are you talking about? This is potentially bad. We need to use more of these. You know, people are undertreated, and, and the whole mantra then was under treatment of pain, and how do we do better? And um, so I was have been around in this for a long time, seeing and trying to kind of sound the alarm that wait a minute, let's use a measured approach. These don't have only benefits. There are some downsides to using opioids a lot, and we're already seeing it. And you know, and so we've been sort of fighting this fight for over 30 years. Just in the last five or 10, has it been so big? that people are kind of seeing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and your mention of the movement, I guess, of Feel No Pain that happened that really had a lot of people using opioids to deal with pain, um, and then now we're kind of, what it feels like coming out of that movement a little bit more, recognizing that there are adverse effects. So what other kind of changes have you seen, especially where's the, where's it going? You know, where's, what's our future look like when it comes to how the field looks at opioids? Sure. I, I think it's, you know, and I hope, I think uh, as well that it's becoming more balanced, that people are trying to um, strike the middle ground where opioids do have uses for certain patients in certain circumstances, post-surgically or for people with um, liver problems or kidney problems that, that don't tolerate things like Tylenol or ibuprofen or other medications. That, that actually work just as well or better uh, than opioids, but maybe not tolerate those others and need to have an option for controlling their pain. Uh, so there's a place for them, but we really became overly reliant upon them in that you know, sort of basically movement from the mid 80s to about, well, it took about 25 years to kind of get to where we peaked mm -hmm. in 2013 at the amount of opioids that we used. And uh, and then obviously with all of that, we've seen a lot of the problems with deaths and overdoses and people becoming uh, addicted and people dependent and difficult to taper off of them. So they're just, even if they're just physiologically dependent, it's really hard. Um, we're seeing what's called hyperalgesia, where if you take opioids for a long period of time, your pain threshold actually gets reset and your tolerance to pain goes down. So it's a paradoxical thing that adjusts not only your response, but your perception and your ability to perceive pain is altered by taking the, the medications for a long period of time. So it's a kind of a vicious cycle. And so we're learning and we're coming back down and there's good progress being made on trying to avoid giving opioids to people if there's other alternatives and things that work just as well for many conditions and often things that work even better. I tell people that all the time that Tylenol and ibuprofen rotated every three hours works better than opioids. Gives you 55% pain relief on a 1 to 10 scale, where opioids give you about a 33% pain relief on a 1 to 10 scale. So it's, we try now to tell people that, like, I'm not, not giving you the opioids because I'm trying to cheat you out of something good. 
I'm trying to give you something better with lower risk, and nobody has just talked about that for very long. There was no money being made in, hey, gee, how do we push these generic, cheap, easy-to-get medications that you can get at the, at the grocery store? There's no money in that for manufacturers. And we kind of lost the marketing war, and we're trying to reclaim it and get back to the middle. And I, I think we're doing that. We're dropping fast on the first prescriptions that we give to people um, are less and less frequently an opioid, which is good. And when we do give them, we're giving fewer tablets for shorter amounts of time, all the trends that we're hoping for, not to go back to zero, but to be much more judicious about when we use them and some people need them and continue to have them available. So I, that's our hope is balanced use, more judicious use. I think that's a good thing for parents to know that that's an option um, because one of the things we talk about is the importance of parents being able to advocate for their children who could potentially be at risk for becoming addicted so that when they go in for a surgery, they go into the dentist, they can actually say, you know, what is the plan for pain? And, and bring that up because they know more about it. Um, so I know a lot of your work has, has been around the opioid epidemic, but I know that more recently the use of benzodiazepines has become a major issue. Um, can you share a little bit about what this drug is and why, why this is becoming a thing that a lot of young people are taking and what the harmful effects of them are? Yeah, it's really kind of disturbing. This is running, this is kind of under the radar right now, but the use, widespread use, and then the misuse, abuse, and dependence kind of issues that we see with benzodiazepines. Um, and benzos are drugs like Ativan or Xanax or Valium. Um, those are some common brand names, but they're drugs for anxiety. Originally approved for anxiety back in the 1950s, Valium was the first one and there's been a whole host of them since, and so people hear about them very commonly out of and Xanax are prescribed. And we're seeing the same kind of thing where we did with opioids in the 1980s through about the year 2005 or eight, uh, the increased use of them. Now, benzodiazepines are being prescribed very commonly um, by primary care doctors, not just psychiatrists, who you would expect to use them on occasion because they're dealing with a lot of people with anxiety. But even primary care doctors are prescribing them much more commonly than they used to, uh, to the point where somewhere between 10 and 15% of the population are taking one. Uh, it's really rather amazing, uh, the, the, the amount of people taking them, the amount of prescriptions being written. I always knew there were some, but it's very, very common to the point where um, opioids used to be given out about 12% of all prescriptions at retail were opioids. That's down to about 7.5%. It's always a good indicator when you see what's going out of the doors at pharmacies. You can kind of tell what's going on across the, of all, all of medicine. And benzodiazepines used to be about 5%. Now they're up to about 12% of all prescriptions going out the door. And that's a lot. If you figure a pharmacy dispenses 500 prescriptions a day at a, at a busy grocery store type pharmacy, like right down the street, uh, and you know if, if every single day 75 of those are a benzodiazepine. They're very commonly used. And so, you know, it's, it's, and it's important that we, I think, are recognizing people's anxiety better. We're treating it better. Those things are all very positive. But the medications themselves, while they're effective for the anxiety, are not studied and not necessarily all of them safe for long-term use unless in very specific circumstances and a psychiatrist, you know, giving the care. Uh, it's very easy for someone to just sort of, you know, indiscriminately use benzodiazepines or use them and over-rely on them beyond a window of a short-term kind of phenomenon where people say, if you have situational anxiety, 
I, it's really difficult for me to, to go to the dentist because I don't like to get my teeth drilled on. Or I don't like to fly. I'm afraid of flying. I need to take this one tablet of Ativan before I fly so that I can manage my anxiety for this flight. That, those things are not that serious. But to use them daily or continually for some level of anxiety and not be under the care of a psychiatrist sort of treads into this same thing where we did with opioids, that we'll just sort of use these to manage pain in general. And now we'll use benzodiazepines to kind of manage anxiety and life's difficult days in general. And before you wake up one day and realize there's a lot of people receiving these and they're very difficult to get off of. Um, to taper them is recommended because if you just stop a benzodiazepine cold, just like an opioid, it can be, be difficult for you and you'll, you'll feel some effects of, of, it's not the same kind of withdrawal, but rebound effects that you'll feel with benzodiazepines. So people then say, well, I can't stop. I have to continue taking it because if I didn't, I feel these weird side effects um, from trying to stop them. And you stay on this vicious cycle, this treadmill of having to be on these benzodiazepines, and it's very difficult. And it's sort of how we started with opioids. It's kind of how things are going with benzodiazepines, and we're starting to see it now with stimulant drugs like Adderall and Stratera, drugs that, that people use for ADHD or ADD, but also have this potential for misuse or abuse or diversion. You hear about them being study drugs or party drugs, or I'll just take these because it makes me feel better. Even if I don't feel bad, I feel better on the stimulant, which most people do. They just feel a little more sharp, a little more focused, but not realizing this is really causing problems with, with vascular reactivity and all kinds of things you can get from being on a stimulant long term if you really don't have narcolepsy or ADHD. So all these have the same kind of thing that starts off with, I think, well-intentioned goals, treating pain, treating anxiety, treating things like ADD or those things that are problems. And we want to recognize them and treat them. And we want to do a better job of that. All of that is well-motivated. But if we swing the pendulum too quickly from under-treating to over-treating and sort of indiscriminately giving virtually everybody a prescription who has any symptoms at all, then we get into these problems. And it's what's happened with all three of these different drug classes. Yeah, you know, and, and really we're living through a time where stress and anxiety are so pervasive that a quick fix with a pill is not going to be enough things aren't really going to slow down or change to the point where kids or even adults don't have to learn other coping mechanisms and strategies for dealing with stress and anxiety. So I, 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 can, I can only see how difficult it is to, to differentiate someone who truly needs a medication or from someone who needs to learn some other strategies or tools for managing their own stress and anxiety. That's very true. It really is. It's hard to, and that's why we always advocate, if this is a situational thing, that I, I don't have a whole lot of problem with, oh, here, here's three tablets of this because you're going to be going on this trip, and you're going to take two flights, and what if you lose one? So I'm going to give you three tablets instead of two. You know, these, these things are very rational and reasonable. What's a hard thing is to, to be able to distinguish between someone who is just needing to, like you say, learn some more coping skills, and it's, this is just everyday life, versus really having um, panic disorder or social anxiety disorder, or social phobia, or PTSD, or something that really is diagnosable, and I don't doubt that some people have that, but to work with a psychiatrist or a very qualified professional to figure out if that's really the diagnosis, and if it is, what's the best strategy for treating that, and it might be pharmacologic or behavioral 
or social or some combination of the above, uh, but really to be determined by a qualified professional to help sort through that and not just think, well, anxiety means benzos, pain means opioids, um, ADHD always means a stimulant, which is kind of how we are um, as a society. And it really is this sort of, I'll just take a pill and this will make my life better and I don't have to change my life or I don't have to figure it out or it's very difficult to make those other changes. This is easy to just take a pill. And it really is, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And for most of the, the time, it probably is. Right. And I imagine that the group that you started, the task force in 1986, that has now become the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention, because that group has interagency collaboration, I imagine that there are a variety of people in the room who talk about the different ways in which to look at these kind of issues. Yes, that's very true. And we have, we're very broad-based and try to be collaborative. We work, obviously, with medical and behavioral health and public health and prevention folks, kind of what we say is on the health and, and public health side of things. But we also work with law enforcement and folks like that who often encounter people who are either suffering from a use disorder or a mental health disorder. Very often, their first encounter with any state system or any organized system is with criminal justice. And usually, it's with a police officer who will encounter them having a difficult situation. And we're trying to work with them to understand what does mental illness look like and what does use disorder look like versus really criminal behavior and how do we deal with both of those things and get people the help they need and not just wor worry about only um, you know, law and order and crime and punishment, which still has to be dealt with, but and not make that the only focus. So we deal with law enforcement and the attorney general and all of our state agencies from public health to behavioral health to regulatory agencies all working together to try to figure out what is everybody's role, how do we collaborate, how do we develop better systems in Colorado, um, how do we increase access to treatment for both substance use disorders, for opioids, you know, the topic of the day, but how do we do that for all of behavioral health and for people who, are, who might be struggling with any sort of behavioral health issue, we really need to build better systems to make people able to get the care they need. Yeah. So Parent Engagement Network supports parents in raising healthy, happy kids. And the, one of the biggest issues that parents deal with or worry about is substance use of any kind, um, and certainly the misuse of it to the point of putting them at risk. Um, what do you think that parents need to know about preventing their child from misusing or abusing these kinds of substances? Yeah, this is a really good question and, if, and it hits home for me as much as anyone. I have two boys, ages 24 and 21, who have gone through the, the youth and adolescent and now the uh, transitional age uh, to become fully grown uh, young men, fine young men. But these questions and concerns were the same. I felt these for the last 25 years, just like any parent. So I very much understand it. Uh, and what we really try to tell people is that prevention is really, it's very much possible to reduce um, kids' use and desire to use and thoughts through better communication, open channels to, to talk with parents and other trusted adults, not just parents, but whether it's a coach or someone who's a music teacher or someone they engage with in an activity, a teacher they respect, a counselor at school, um, you know, a, a good friend of the family, maybe it's a, a, a really their best friends, parents, uh, or mine were anyway, 
just as important to me as my own parents. And so we had a lot of conversations with both mine and with his, and then he would have, be at my house and would have conversations with my parents. It was kind of extended family. But to really be able to have conversations about things, and not in an uncomfortable or confrontational way, but to, to share, in, again, sharing information so that, that our youth can make informed decisions. And when they have information, the research has shown they make better decisions. And the scare tactics don't work. That, you know, just shaking our finger at them and saying, don't do this, don't do that, has a paradoxically opposite effect. And uh, all parents <laughs> kind of realize this pretty quickly, I think I did. Didn't take me long to see that that, that, that didn't work. Uh, but really giving them information works. And it may not work the day that you give it, but continuing to feed information and to have open discussion and, and an environment where, where your child can feel comfortable talking with you. You know, kids do hear, that's been shown. Kids understand, that's been shown. And kids modify their behavior in response to information. That's been shown. So we try to just do those things as much as we can. Then there are strategies you can take to you know, make it less available for your kids. Don't have a bunch of opioids in your medicine cabinet. The number one place that people start is with leftovers in a family member or friend's medicine cabinet. And that's true for opioids, benzos, and stimulants. That's the most common starting point, is the leftovers. So it's not even, well, gee, I'm going to go find a dealer, and I'm going to you know, start off that way. Nobody starts off that way, very few. Most people start off with, oh, gee, this is here. I'll try that, because either I don't feel good, and it might help me, or I'm just, I'm just curious, and I want to see what that's like. And boy, those are common things for everybody, and especially for kids, that I have a lot of curiosity, and I have day-to-day -day, you know, pains and, and aches and pains, both physical and, and, and coming from anxiety and from stress. I have those aches and pains too, and that's kind of what kids and even, even adults do that. So it's a good strategy. Get that stuff out of the medicine cabinet, and you, it's much harder to get started on it if we reduce availability. Right. You know, um, what would you recommend for parents who do have leftover meds in their home? Yeah, the easiest thing to do is to, what we say is, take the meds back. Take them back where you got them. It used to not be possible, but in the last five years, we, we've worked really hard to create a permanent take-back system across Colorado so that virtually uh, any pharmacy in virtually any town, there will be at least one or more pharmacies. And I know here in Boulder, there's at least a dozen of them that have permanent take-back boxes where you just take the medications back, drop them in the box. It looks like a big FedEx or mailbox, so it's very secure. You take them back, and they dispose of them, and they cannot do you or your kids harm if they're not in your house. Um, and people think, well, I'll save them for a rainy day, or I paid for these, so I'm not going to give them back because it was my money and I paid for them. But it's really kind of, of, of you know, sort of paradoxically wrong thinking because that now becomes a risk. It's leaving something high risk where your kids know to get it. And people keep them right in their medicine cabinets, and everybody knows where to go to get them. Your kids know. Your kids' uh, friends know um, where, the, where the opioids would be or where the Xanax would be or where the uh, Adderall would be. It's in the medicine cabinet right there. Very easy to get. So we worry about drug dealers, and we worry about things and bad influences outside the home. And that's a concern. And I'm not saying it's not a concern. but. The biggest one of all is what's in the home, and we just have to mind this much better and be much more vigilant about keeping track of these and not allowing people to have access to them uh, because kids, they know where they are. Right, right. And the fact that you can just go right back to the pharmacy you got them or to a local pharmacy makes it pretty convenient. 
Yeah, we think it is. Because virtually all pharmacies now are at least considering it. Many of them are doing this. We have a website called takemedsback.org. So you can just go to takemedsback.org, click on the map, and you can see the closest place that has a take-back box for you. And there's directions and hours and the whole thing. So it's very easy to just, you know, gee, and we we try to use taglines that are easy to remember. Takemedsback.org. You know, takemedseriously.org for information about how do I better store these and dispose of them and what about my questions about um, you know what does uh, you know safe use look like when should I use opioids or not use them those kinds of things so we we try to have taglines that you can remember the website uh, because it's a three-word statement of what you what, what we hope you will do take meds back great that's great um, and we've talked about being prescribed these drugs um, but what about the situation where you have a child that has started to use one of these drugs without a prescription, how would a parent notice that there's something different going on? Yeah, usually most of these, any of these substances, and this probably goes the same true for uh, marijuana or other illicits like marijuana or cocaine or anything else, but it's certainly for the prescription drugs. You know, we always say look for, for dramatic behavioral change. If somebody's friend group is suddenly different, you know, I'm hanging out with this group of friends and then very quickly I shift and you know, drop all of these friends that I've had for 12 or 15 years and don't see them anymore at all, which is very odd, and then all of a sudden start hanging out with a completely different group of friends, and ordinarily it's friends that are hmm, missing school a lot and they're having their own issues, like, well, if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. And it's probably some sort of change. Maybe it's some of the experience, may have experienced some adverse event in their life that you may not be aware of as a parent. Something could have happened to them at school something that they experience that you may not know, or just simply, hey, they may have been drifting down a, a path of having tried something for whatever reason and then starting to experience the negative effects of, of use. And so any of those, we look for those sort of telltale signs, you know, changes in sleep patterns, changes in diet, um, of, you know, the amount, some, even the amount kids eat, um, usually like my sons, you know, it's very you know, voracious eaters. And one of them, I had those questions, hmm, he's not eating much, but made no sense because a kid could pack away 4,000 calories a day. And any change like that, that he's not hungry, I, you, know, you come to find out that there could be other reasons for why those changes are. So we just tell people, look for you know, dramatic changes in behavior, um, sleeping, eating, friends, day-to-day, the way things are going for them in their daily life. And if nothing else, parents are very much aware of how their child has been behaving for a long period of time and you really can be aware of changes and look for those changes and then initiate the conversations. It's you know, not to be accusatory, I mean, shaking your finger at someone, but, but what's going on with you? you know, how's everything going? And how can, you know, how can we talk about how stuff's going at school or with your friends? Because I want to support you in everything you're doing. And feeling, oh, this is a, a safe place and a supportive environment. I can talk to this person about this. And it's really simple things like that. Right. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned the importance of being in relationship and good communication, um, and I think that's one of the questions we get quite frequently at Parent Engagement Network is, is how do I have these kind of conversations? So um, any other recommendations, I guess, for a parent who's like, oh my gosh, something's going on, how do I even start? I know you, you shared a couple examples of, you know, hey, can we talk about this, but what if you have a child that's like pretty shut down? Mm-hmm. Then any ideas on what you do about that? Yeah, it could be hard. You know, it really can be hard to draw them out and get them to talk. It's you know kind of a 
what I've been told anyway is uh, by the experts that I talk to is you know continue to make sure that they're aware that the door is open can't force somebody to go through a door that they don't want to go through but to make them aware and reassure them each day that, that you're there for them that you care that you're available that you know, whatever is happening there, there, there is no such thing as a, a topic that I couldn't talk to you about or would, would be uh, you know, too ashamed to talk about that, that you know, and we all make mistakes and we all have issues that come up and challenges every day, but this is, this is common. Don't feel that that's unusual um, for you, that, that if you're struggling, you'd be the only person struggling. We all have struggles to, to really try to keep sending those messages repeatedly and give people opportunity. There's also a website called speaknow.org uh, that the State Office of Behavioral Health uh, and a lot of really wonderful um, people in the field have created this and have given tips and, and guides basically for parents to have these conversations with their children as young as five to eight years old and having start to have conversations very early, simple concepts and you know not as in-depth but ways to how would I talk to my seven-year-old or how would I talk to my 13-year-old, which is a very different person, or <laughs> how would I talk to my 18, 18 or 19-year-old, which is a very different person, um, and how do I do that? And, and just like you said, how do I do it? So I, I think there's some useful tips there at Speak Now. That's great. Those are good, good references for our listeners. Um, so some people who are tuning in might actually be in a position where they're struggling themselves or have a child that's misusing or addicted to some kind of a substance. Um, and I know in 2016, you wrote a report titled Prescription Drug Abuse, Colorado's Collective Action Approach. Um, and in this, you talk about how between 1999 and 2013, a number, the number of opioids that were sold al became almost fourfold what it had been before, um, which I thought was shocking to see. It was enough for every American adult to have a bottle of pills. Um, and by 2014, the overdose mortality had increased 500% in Colorado. And by 2011, the treatment gap was 90%, meaning that there were, of the 21.6 million people needing treatment, only 2.3 million were actually getting it. Um, and I think that is something I've heard from people as being very challenging, is when you get to a place where you, where you know, suspect or know that your child is misusing um, a serious substance like this, um, that they have challenges in finding the right treatment. So what do you think makes that so difficult for, for a parent or for, for somebody who's dealing with a substance problem? Yeah, it's been a, it's a really challenging thing, getting, getting people access to awareness of and ability to, to get into treatment when they need it and want it. Um, it's a challenging thing across the board. We've done a really terrible job over the last 40 or 50 years in our country of, of trying to uh, build systems to deal with behavioral health in general and particularly with, with substance use disorders. Um, it's difficult enough to, to find help for depression or anxiety or these things, uh, but even worse for finding help with a use disorder. Uh, we've, so people have struggled uh, to find it, and like you, like you mentioned, um, a few year, as recently as a few years ago, four years ago, our treatment gap in the United States was 90%, meaning nine out of 10 people who want and need treatment cannot get it for a variety of reasons. No coverage, not, no, not knowing where to go, not being able to access it because of geography or economics or other barriers. 
uh, and that's obviously uh, totally unacceptable. Uh, and it's uh, become a priority, uh, both in Colorado and at the national level, to try to close that treatment gap. And so we're working very hard in Colorado to train more providers, uh, create more places, uh, increase payment, and, and change payment mechanisms for treatment to incentivize doctors to go into this and to have better reimbursement so they'll actually do it. Uh, educate them about stigma. A huge part of this is the stigma associated with use disorders that people are, have been over the years labeled as bad people um, that don't deserve treatment because they make bad, these people make bad choices and they're, they're terrible people and, and we know none of this to be true. Uh, we know that this is another human being, just like you or I, that may have made a bad choice initially about, about you know, a, a risky behavior and oftentimes these are, you know, young adults or teenagers that make decisions that are risky and don't seem reasonable when you're 30 years old. And that's why kids have to pay more for car insurance until they're 25, because they do mm -hmm. occasionally make more risky decisions than adults do. And you, know, you just look at car insurance as the proxy for where risk is, because the actuary, you know, actuaries are perfect in their, in their analysis. <laughs> So we just, you know, we, we try to now expand treatment and, and deal with telling doctors and patients that, look, this is a medical condition. Addiction, use disorder, is not a behavioral choice kind of moral issue. It's a medical issue. The science is clear that addiction or use disorder is a is chronic, relapsing, remitting brain disease. And doctors know it. And the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, of Mental Disorders, called the DSM, knows it and the science is just extremely clear that this is a lot more like diabetes than it is some bad choice and you you know you you chose to drink and drive that's a bad choice that's totally preventable this once you're down a path and have the tolerance and dependence and addiction that is developed you're no longer in the realm of choice now you're chasing not being in withdrawal dopamine is driving your behavior your brain is circuitry has been rewired to seek that behavior to seek that substance and your behavior is just merely chasing that substance all day regardless of the consequences that you look at that and say that's not rational and of course it's not but somebody's brain has been rewired and now this person needs treatment they don't need shame they don't need you know any shaming and blaming and a friend of mine uh, Lisa Rayville who runs the harm reduction action center in Denver has a quote that I always give her attribution for that if shame and blame had worked for getting our way out of this, we would have solved it years ago. Uh, and it doesn't work uh, because this is not a moral failing. This is a disease. And so we're treating it that way. And now that we're telling doctors that and telling patients that, that look, this is a disease, we can help you. Just like we can manage your diabetes, we can manage your use disorder, get you back to, to stable. You can get your job back. You can get your car back. You can get your dog back, your family. You can contribute, you can feel good about yourself now because you've gotten your life back together and can contribute and, and people can really can succeed and treatment works. It's when we get people into treatment, it works more often than it doesn't if we can do it right. We just have to get them into treatment and do it right, not sort of half-ass half it, and pardon my French, but not do this halfway um, and really do what we need to do, give people medication-assisted treatment, give them the counseling they need, the social support they need, housing and job training, transportation, make sure they have a situation that supports them when they're um, getting their life back together, and treatment works more than half the time, 58% of the time if we do it right. Mm. And people say, well, that's not very good, 58%. No, it's a better treatment success rate than diabetes or, or treating hypertension. 
So it really does work. Treatment works. Recovery is possible. We have to destigmatize it and then build access and build easy ways for people to know where to go. I can have this conversation with my primary care doctor. I could have it with the emergency room physician if there's a crisis moment. I can go to the community mental health center. I can talk to them there, any of these places. I can even talk to the cop and say, you know, I'm really having a rough time. And they, that, maybe that's the first person I encounter because I'm just wandering you know, down on the mall and I'm depressed and I don't, I don't know what to do and I'm despondent. And a cop can have that conversation and say, you know, we know now in Boulder and Longmont where treatment is and I can help you get there. And I'm not just here to, to arrest people. I'm here to help my community. And the Boulder Police Department is fantastic at this. And the Longmont PD is fantastic at this and really leading our state in how to do mental health co-response, it's called. How do we deal with people and give them the, the resources they need? And maybe it's not going to jail. A lot of the times it's not. It's really giving people help, and that's what we're trying to do. So there's you know, access, stigma, coverage. We're trying to, to increase, um, you know, improve them all. Yeah, I, and I heard you say a couple of things. I heard that, um, and I've, I've raised two kids myself, so I'm in the same boat as you with young adults who are figuring their life out. Um, one of the things that I found effective personally with the things that my kids struggled with was the idea of circle the wagons. Like it's not necessarily you go do this one thing and that's going to fix whatever's going on, but you know, maybe it's doing something around finding the right therapist, maybe even doing some uh, massage, uh, acupuncture, dealing with the problems that are the underlying thing that's causing this. And that's the other thing that I heard you say is that, you know, addiction or, or misuse of a substance isn't just an act. It's a thing that comes from something and going after fixing and working on the thing that's having or driving that person to use is really effective. Yeah, virtually all of it is. Very little of it is true, what I would call true experimentation, meaning I'm just going to try it for the heck of it. And I have no compelling reason other than I just am curious and I'm going to try things for the heck of it. Very, very, very few people do that of any age. Most of it comes from something, some sort of suffering in some way. Most of it is not physical. About a third of it is 25 to 33 percent is physical and people say I've got an ache or a pain, my back hurts, my leg hurts, you know, that, that, you know so I'm going to try to figure that out. Two-thirds to three-quarters of it is, is, is mental and behavioral, saying hey I don't feel good about my life. I'm depressed, I'm anxious, life sucks, life is hard. I, I want to do something to feel less suffering. And it's hard to do the other things, which is I gotta figure out how to deal with what is causing this suffering and try to change my situation or co better cope with it. And those things are systematic that we have to deal with. And it does take more time to deal with. Uh, the number one reason people have use disorders is, is adverse childhood experiences. The number one predictor of all use disorders, alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, cocaine, opioids, any of it is called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And those are any sort of thing, you know, even a traumatic experience like for a child, losing a, a loved one, divorce, obviously any sort of physical or adolescent, um, any sort of sexual abuse or trauma in that way, those are really strong predictors of people having use disorders and seeking a way to cope with the difficulties of life. And those are just much more extreme examples of a difficulty. But the more extreme, 
the more likely someone is to have this uh, be the, the way they try to cope. Mm. So it's all the more trouble. And then those things are hard to talk about, they're hard to identify, but it's exactly what we need to do is identify them, get people counseling, treatment, um, help with families and social support, schools, and, and you know, it is communities of resiliency and, and dealing with these things we call risk and protective factors and build up the protective factors and the supports and all of the helps and reduce the risk factors as much as possible. And then those things, when you do both of those things, the resilience people have goes up mm -hmm. and use rates go down and, and it's, a, it's a winning uh, approach. But it's, it's a hard one because it's not just, hey, I, I just need to do this one thing and it's all better. It's, it really takes a lot of different things at the family level, the individual level, relationships, as you mentioned, and then as communities, we need to build resilient communities that support our, our citizens. You know, and that really speaks to, as a parent, those are the kind of things you want to be creating for your child way before you're even worried about substance use or they're at that experimental adolescent crazy stage in life. Um, it's hard, but it, you, the use stuff is a consequence. It's the, it's the downstream consequence and the symptom of something that, that, that there's a reason. Very, again, very rarely do kids or anybody for that matter just do it to be doing it for the sake of it out of the blue. Just, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to do that today for no reason. There's all, almost always a reason. And so it's a response to something and, and figuring out what those are. Most often it's, it's some form of, of mental or physical suffering or pain. Um, more often mental than physical. And so we look at it that way and say, all right, how can I be attuned to my child's physical and mental well-being? And if they're not doing well, address it. And even if they are doing well, hey, how do we maintain it, continue to foster resilience and wellness, and make them even stronger for the inevitable bump in the road that is going to happen at some point for all of us? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I set up with my kids when they were growing up was I had them go visit two or three therapists and not not because I was sending them to therapy but we actually created a contract and the contract was you have now visited these therapists you've chosen the one that you feel comfortable sitting and talking with and what I'm going to ask of you is that if at any point you feel like you need someone to talk to besides your mom or dad or, or a significant adult in your life or if at any point I think you are putting yourself at risk or doing things that could could be um, that needed help that that you would go see this particular person and it was great because it wasn't like you were talking about earlier that kids don't like it when you just shake your finger and I'm telling you know I'm sending you to therapy because there's a message around that that there's something messed up unless you've had conversations to have them feel differently about that there can be this this kind of negative message that something must be wrong with me um, and what worked about that was my my kids just had a place they could go. And, and, if, and if I felt like I needed to, I'd pull the card and say, you know, maybe it's time for you to go see so-and-so, have a conversation about that. <laughs> it seemed to really work. That's really good. Wish I wish I had a podcast about 15 years ago. I could have used that. that was, that's really good. <laughs> so one of the things I really like to ask people is, um, is what do you think young people, the world that we're growing up in now, today, the world that they face, the future they face. What do you think it is that young people crave from the adults, the role models, the people in their lives? You know, I, th I don't know that it's changed over the years. I had a lot of conversations about these things with my parents as they were older and, 
before they passed. And so I had a lot of opportunity to talk to them about those kinds of generational things and what's, you know, what's unique to the generation that I'm from, what was unique to the generation they were from, what's unique about the grand, their grandkids, my kids. And what is it? And, and, and there's, I think, some universal truths that, that come out that I think people, you know, want a life where they feel they've got purpose, they feel, you know, things are, are humane and they're supported, and, and they have good relationships with people, and that they're heard, and that, that they matter, you know, that, that each person, they matter. And if they feel that way, they tend to do much better. And so, and, and others, and my dad used to say, people want a life that, are, that is purposeful, productive, and humane. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what any of those words meant when he told me that. Not <laughs> like I don't know what you're talking about. It's crazy. It's an old guy talking, is what I thought. And even the older I get, I think you know that's not far off, really, because that's what you want. You want to feel that the life is humane and you have a, a, a decent life, but that you're purposeful and productive. You have something that you identify with, that, that you feel jazzed up about, and that's why I was had told my kids, uh, what, whatever's excited, what they're excited to do, what their passion is, to follow it and feed it, and you know the rest will follow. That you know, so feed their passions, and that's what they're really excited about. Whether it's you know school or my one son, I, I I don't know why, but it's, it's accounting and finance and business. Like, wow, that's not me. It's not a, not a passion for me. But he's really passionate about it and really good at it. And so of course I support it, and it's great. He went to Leeds here in Boulder, and it's just you know it's fantastic. Other son completely different, and so it's just you know whatever their passions are, to help you know feed them, show them that support that their passions matter, that their life's course is a is a circuitous journey. There's no straight line from, from here to anywhere. Uh, no straight lines. Uh, and that that's, that's not only okay, but it's exciting and fun and, and you know, life, we can embrace that. The, the journey is as, as important as the destination. But I think those are you know, little tidbits that, that I've heard and I think parents skip them and I've already learned a couple things from you here today. So I think that's the, the benefit of this kind of, of podcast and this kind of network is to be able to share with each other, um, hey, that's, that's good. I left here with something I didn't have when I came, so that's that's great. Yeah, that's great. And I and boy, how much more fun is it to encourage your kids to experiment with different careers or interests or passions than to have the negative experimentation with other things? Because at the end of the day, both of those things make you feel good. Right. And how great to to do the positive things. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about today, or that you would want to leave parents with? I would just think to, you know, to, for me, it's always this message of understand, you know, especially with, it's the medication stuff, and that's where I come from, my training, but the medications, you know, are wonderful and can be a really wonderful tool for things, but that they've all got downsides and side effects, and just to, you know, just to treat them with a lot of respect, you know, and that, that they're not just sort of, oh, yeah, throw a bunch of stuff in the medicine cabinet, it's no big deal, and be sort of lackadaisical about it, which a lot of us are, um, but then say, hey, then really look at this and look at that as an opportunity to, um, to reduce access to a potentially harmful thing. And then it is just in, engage and, and think upstream. Think less about uh, what are the, the downstream things that you might need to, and you know, we, we may need to figure out which medication is right for a certain condition, but think more upstream about how do I avoid needing that and how do I uh, focus on resilience and focus on um, building these, these protective factors, um, which is the best thing you can do. No one can guarantee what's gonna happen to themselves or their kids. I wish I could. I would do the same thing. I'd, I'd, I would buy the guarantee if I could buy it, uh, but I can't. Uh, but, you know, we do the best we can with it and, and, and try to learn like this from each other. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rob, for being here today and for sharing all of your expertise and, and um, um, 
experience that you've had in this area, how can our audience find out more about you or get in touch with you? Sure, you can go to our uh, website. It's um, for the Colorado Consortium, and it's C-O-R-X consortium.org is our consortium website. And my contact info is there. Um, then also we have different links to our, our awareness campaigns about medications, takemedseriously.org that I mentioned, takemedsback.org that I mentioned, and a third one that we just started called uh, bringnaloxonehome.org, which talks about a reversing drug, an overdose reversing drug called naloxone, drug available to save them just like you would have an EpiPen if somebody had an allergy uh, to peanuts. We want to thank Radio 1190 for letting us use their space. If you like what you heard today and want to become a sponsor or make a donation, you can find us at penbv.org. That's P-E-N-B-V.org. We hope today's conversation has added to your parenting well. Having a well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, and you've been listening to Parenting Well Podcast. Until next time, happy parenting.